and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of these black Bibles that are scattered uh, throughout the sanctuary underneath the seats in front of you, uh, it's going to be on page 855. Acts chapter 1. Famous last words. Some famous last words are noble. Uh, George Washington said, It is well, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. Some last words are poetic. Emily Dickinson said, The fog is rising. Other last words are, are comically tragic. Civil War Union commander John Sedgwick, when he was told not to show himself over the wall, said, nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Apparently they could. John Rogers uh, was a criminal, and he was asked for last words or final request, and he said, why, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest. Last words. Last words can tell us a lot about a person's heart, their priorities, their passions, And the more important a person is to us, the more carefully we're going to listen to their last words. In this morning's text, we have some last words spoken, not by someone who is dying, but last words by someone who was dead and is now alive and is about to depart for a very long time. For three years, Jesus' disciples were instructed and encouraged by his words, And now that time was coming to an end. It's not that Jesus would never speak again, but this would be the final time he would speak with them during his earthly ministry in this way. And Jesus, knowing this, strategically and intentionally chose specific words, specific instruction and encouragement that his disciples would need before he returned to heaven. And those words were not just for them, they're for us his disciples today. And Luke, the writer of Acts, wants you to pay very close attention to these last words because he wants these words to be at the center of your life and the center of your purpose as a Christian. So let's hear these words now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. This is Acts chapter one. And we're gonna start at verse six and read on down through verse 11. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word so that we might receive what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
Jesus is alive. And because he lives, everything changes. Jesus' original disciples knew that. Uh, They recognized Jesus to be the Christ, God's anointed king whom the enemies of God tried to kill, but it didn't work out too well. And in the wake of the resurrection, the disciples realized that the very world order is, is, is turning on its head. And so you can imagine the anticipation they must have felt as Jesus gathers them together to discuss the next phase of the king's plan. But Jesus' words are preceded by a, his last words are preceded by a last question from the disciples. Now, think about this. If you could ask Jesus one question, if you could ask him any question, I wonder what question you would ask him. Surely you wouldn't pick anything trivial or flippant like who's going to win the Super Bowl. You're going to go big. And that's exactly what the disciples do here. They ask about the coming kingdom. And that actually ends up being the focal point of the rest of the conversation and Jesus' last words before he ascends to heaven. So our text starts with a kingdom question. A kingdom question. Look with me at verse 6. So when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what do they mean by restore? Well, put yourself in the Jewish mindset. And remember that though they and Jesus were standing there in Israel, in the land of promise, Jerusalem in their sights, Israel was not free. Uh, The Roman eagle stood tall and proud in Jerusalem, Roman troops and governors and Puppet dictators who extended Caesar's rule controlled the region. The shadow of Rome was over the whole land. The zenith of Israel's kingdom was centuries before under David and Solomon. Israel was rich and powerful and victorious over their enemies, but then the kingdom split between north and south at war with one another, and eventually large world empires moved in and oppressed and dominated them. And Rome was the latest in a long line of global bullies kicking Israel around. And so, naturally, there was was a deep dissatisfaction among the Jews over this. In fact, there emerged one political group known as the Zealots. They saw themselves as freedom fighters. Rome saw them as terrorists. Interestingly, one of Jesus' disciples came from the party of Zealots. Simon the Zealot, he was creatively called. Now, while Simon would have ditched his violent ways when he became a disciple, he probably clung to his Jewish patriotism. And it's not hard to imagine that perhaps Simon was leading the way and asking this question about the restoration of Israel. But it wasn't just Simon who was eager for this. If you remember back into uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, the mother of, of two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, asked Jesus for a favor. Do you remember what it was? just a little favor, just a a little small thing, that her sons would sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in his kingdom. Just a small thing, a little audacious, actually. And we're told that the other disciples were mad at James and John, jockeying for the highest seats of power in Jesus' incoming administration. And why do you think they were mad? Because they wanted to be in the seats of power. Uh, They're all thinking the kingdom is coming, Israel's coming back, they've got their make Israel great again hats on, their mega hats. 
We're gonna be, we're gonna be an awesome power again. Uh, we're, when we get to be a part of it, and we get to rise to power with Jesus. Down with Caesar, down with Rome, bye-bye Gentiles, the golden age of Israel is at hand. Most Jews awaiting the Messiah were anticipating something like this, a a geopolitical and military restoration of Israel that would include a forceful removal of Rome from the land. The Jews weren't just waving palm branches as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem because they thought those palm branches were pretty. The palm branch was a sign of Jewish nationalism and freedom from foreign tyranny. If Jesus would have drawn a sword to storm the gates of the local Roman garrison, thousands would have been ready to follow him into battle. Of course, just days after Palm Sunday, Jesus died. But then he was raised. And so now the disciples are asking, well, maybe it's now. Uh, is the time now? Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? Since they, were, they asked him that, and, in the, and, and the verb in the Greek there, it suggests that they were repeatedly asking about it. They're eager. They're excited. Now, now, commentators have heavily criticized the disciples' question as misguided and misdirected. Is it? Well, I'd say yes and no. No in the sense of just the context of Acts 1-6. Remember, we saw last week in verse 3 that Jesus had been speaking with them about the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, he promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Jewish Old Testament eschatology, one of the signs that the kingdom was going to be restored was the coming of the Spirit. And and in the mind of any Jew, the establishment of the kingdom would mean the restoration of Israel. They would have thought about scriptures like Ezekiel 36, which promised the eschatological end times cleansing of the Spirit, uh, followed by Ezekiel 37, where, where Ezekiel receives that dramatic vision of dry bones coming to life through God's Spirit, and Ezekiel learns that the dry bones are the whole house of Israel. And then in Ezekiel 37, 16, God says to him, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah, and then take another stick and write on it for Israel. That's the, the northern and southern kingdoms that were divided. And then it says, join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Behold, I'm about to take the stick of the tribes of Israel and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. And one king shall be king over them all and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And who is that king? Well, it says a few verses later in Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. So in Ezekiel, the coming of the Spirit is coupled with the reunification of the divided kingdom. And this kingdom will be ruled by a shepherd king called David. Now, of course, David was long dead when this was written. Uh, This would be David's descendant, the son of David, Messiah himself. So it's not surprising uh, that the disciples would connect the dots in this way. They, They think the end of the world as we know it is here, and the consummation of all the redemptive purposes of God is at hand, and Messiah's earthly rule is about to take off even in just a few days. Remember, he said, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's coming. So in one sense, the disciples are not misguided and misdirected. But in another sense, they are, in a big way. And Jesus is going to help them now to reconfigure their assumption in theological framework, which moves to a kingdom clarification. That's my next point, kingdom clarification. 
The disciples are asking about the end of all things and the final fulfillment of all of God's promises. And Jesus says to them in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, you're on a need-to-know basis. When it comes to specific in time details when history as we know it wraps up and the kingdom is consummated. No man knows the day or the hour. These things are above your pay grade and above your security clearance. By the way, that's a good word for us today. It's not wrong to wonder about the future, but we should see Jesus' words here in verse seven as a warning that we can focus on such things too much and that constantly obsessing about in time details of the future can distract us, if we're not careful, can distract us from what we are supposed to be doing for God in the present. And church history is full of people who were obsessed with with the timing of of the things of the very end and and of Jesus' return. I remember uh, in the the 70s and 80s, there there were people who were so certain that they had all of the details down. They had a newspaper in one hand, and they had a Bible in the other hand. And they were really good at connecting the dots, and they were absolutely certain that supermarket checkout scanners were the mark of the beast. Or that the European Union was the, was the beast of Revelation 13. Or, or others, others said, declared uh, Mikhail Gorbachev or, or even Ronald Reagan to be the Antichrist. Because, because R- Ronald, Ronald Reagan's name was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six, six, six. Each, each, each name there had six, the number six in it. And of course, Gorbachev had that weird mark on his forehead. Well, that must mean something. This is a birthmark, y'all. There, there was a guy who, who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That didn't happen. And, and guess what? He followed up with another book explaining why 1989 would be the date. That book didn't sell quite as well. More recently, maybe y'all heard of a guy named Harold Camping. He claimed that the rapture would happen in May 21st, 2011. Didn't happen. He revised it to October 21st, 2011. Still didn't happen. Haven't heard from him since. This sort of thing is nothing new. And, And Jesus is telling us to not focus on those details, but to focus on the mission. He tells his disciples, it's not for you to know the timing of these things. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my my favorite verses, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that he has revealed belong to us and and our children forever. Uh, So he says, it's not for you to know the timing of these things, but notice what he does, what, what he does not say. He does not say there won't be any restoration of Israel. Uh, that there won't be a final future physical manifestation of the kingdom. What's more, don't think that in verse 8 Jesus is changing the subject or dodging the question. Some commentators act that way. Like, like they're, they're asking about the, the restoration of the kingdom and, and the, he just goes off in a completely different direction. I don't think so. What Jesus is about to say next is very much related to their question about the kingdom. But Jesus is going to show them that not just the timing but the nature and the scope and the advancement of the coming kingdom is vastly different from what they had ever imagined. The disciples are thinking of a tiny dot on the map in the Middle East. Jesus is thinking of something that starts small and then expands. Uh, He speaks of something starting in Jerusalem and all Judea and then Samaria and then extending to the end of the earth. And this would have really shattered the categories of 
many Jews who were simply envisioning a kingdom based out of Palestine, centered in Jerusalem, with those pesky Gentiles expelled. And Jesus is showing them that their vision was way too small and way too exclusive. Jesus' kingdom rule will begin in Jerusalem, but then radiate outward into Judea. Now, now that would have been expected. But then he says, into Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans. They were considered half-breed heretics. On the other hand, Samaria was the realm of that old northern kingdom that had broken off from Judah. That led to the divided kingdom. But Messiah's reach will extend into Samaria. Uh, The southern and northern kingdoms will be brought back together under one king, as Ezekiel 37 prophesied. But then it gets even crazier. Jesus starts talking about the ends of the earth. And so Jesus envisions a kingdom way different than what the disciples were thinking. Dennis Johnson writes that the disciples' conception of restoration needed to be expanded to worldwide and even cosmic dimensions. Their ethnocentric focus on Israel's military and political ascendancy was far too small. In order to coincide with the Father's plan, their mental picture of the Messiah's kingdom would have to be magnified far beyond the boundaries of their imagination. Jesus envisions a kingdom that is not expelling and excluding those pesky Gentiles and not destroying and replacing them, but instead reaching them and including them. In fact, one of the earliest messianic prophecies in the Bible foresaw this, Genesis 49.10. Jacob gives a stunning prophecy regarding Judah, the ancient ancestor of David and Christ. And Jacob says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Nations can be translated peoples, the different ethnic people groups of the world. Messiah's global rule will not obliterate ethnic distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, but it will unite them together as equal kingdom citizens. We see this prophesied in Isaiah 19, where God takes two of Israel's worst enemies, Egypt and Assyria, Pagan, idolatrous Gentile peoples whom the Jews would have despised, uh, whom they would have called dogs, whom some Jews saw as only being useful to serve as fuel for the fires of hell. And yet many Jews had forgotten that God foresaw a day when even nations like Egypt and Assyria would worship the one true God and be on equal footing with Israel. God says in Isaiah 19.25, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God is forecasting a time where people of every tribe and tongue will be enfolded into his advancing kingdom, even those who were seen as the worst enemies of God and his people. Again, Dennis Johnson says that the disciples needed to see the expanding horizons of the Lord's work of rescue and repair and restoration, embracing not only Israelites, but all people in a triumphant conquest of grace, which leads to my third point, which is kingdom conquest. Kingdom conquest. How, how, how do kingdoms normally expand? Through the sword, military might, political machinations, exercising strength and dominance over other people. That's how Rome did it. That's how the Jewish zealots aimed to do it. That's how nations do it today. That's the conventional wisdom of this world. That's not how the kingdom of Christ will expand. Instead, Jesus says, again in verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. My witnesses. That the kingdom will advance not through war, but through witness. 
through testifying about Jesus starting in Jerusalem, but spreading outward everywhere, all over the world. The kingdom advances not through human power, but through proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And what specifically is included in this gospel? Well, Luke 24 is a good parallel passage for Acts 1. And in Luke 24, Jesus says to his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the disciples are to proclaim the death and the resurrection of Christ along with repentance and forgiveness of sins. To whom? Not just Israel, but to all nations, all peoples, because the purpose of this global kingdom conquest is not to destroy the enemies of God, but to save them. To save them from the very sins that kept them out of the kingdom in the first place. The typical patriotic Zealous first century Jew would have looked at the surrounding Gentile peoples with disdain and contempt. But Jesus looks at them with compassion. He sees a world full of people that have rebelled against him and have rejected his kingship, of people who have tried to be their own king and are enslaved to their own sinful desires. And now, because of their treasonous insurrection against the king, they deserve the death penalty in hell forever. But the message of the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the good news is that Jesus came into the world to pay the price for those sins. On the cross, he suffered God's penalty on behalf of sinners everywhere. And he's now risen from the grave. And he offers new life to all who turn from their sins, who stop trying to be their own Lord and submit to him as Lord and King, trusting in his sacrifice to cleanse them of all their sins. And all who believe this good news will be saved, will be forgiven, will be brought into the kingdom, and will enjoy eternal life with God starting now and continuing forever, even beyond the grave. And if you have not received God's free offer of pardon and forgiveness, you can't even now. Where you're sitting, in the quietness of your own heart, even now you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Friends, God is determined to have a kingdom, a people for himself who will experience the kindness and blessings of God and and the everlasting joy that comes with being a kingdom citizen and not just a few people. God God is not just too loving, but also too worthy of glory and praise to be worshiped by one small group of people in one small corner of the world. The Bible says the whole earth will be full of his glory. That's the mission. But many Jews had forgotten this. Somewhere along the way, many of them had lost the mission. They, uh, they'd forgotten why Israel existed in the first place. Not for themselves, not so that they could enjoy having God and his blessings all to themselves and to hell, literally, with everyone else. Hope you, you know I'm not being crude there. That was the mindset of many. But in Isaiah 49, 6... God the Father reveals his intentions for Messiah, who was to be the very embodiment of Israel and her mission, when he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, to restore national Israel only. Remember, that's what the disciples were asking for. But God's saying, no, that's too small. You need to think bigger. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
the end of the earth. Sound familiar? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. This is what God sent Jesus into the world to do. This is why God established Israel in the first place. And now in Acts 1, Jesus is inviting his disciples to join him in this global mission. Jesus here is fulfilling what he said to his disciples in John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even now, even so I'm sending you. In the Old Testament, typically the means by which the nations might know God was through a come and see model of missions, where God's activity among Israel would draw in outsiders to learn more about God. But now in the New Testament, it's not come and see, it's go and tell. Tell of the things that you have seen. Tell of the things that you have heard. Preach the gospel. Preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all because God isn't satisfied with just a few people in one corner of the world glorifying him and enjoying him forever. God's love is bigger than that and God deserves way more than that. He says in Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Who are, who are all the offspring of Israel? Well, here in the context of this particular scripture, God has in mind all people to the ends of the earth, believing Jews and Gentiles who joyfully bend the knee and swear allegiance to him as king. These shall be justified and shall glory. All are counted as citizens of a kingdom which has its origins in Jerusalem, but extends to include peoples even to the ends of the earth. I also think about Amos chapter eight, which specifically has to do with the restoration of Israel. Uh, This again was what the disciples were asking about. And God says in Amos 8, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. To what end? That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So the restoration of Israel will include Israel possessing the remnant of Edom and the nations. The nations, the Gentile peoples. Now, that could be interpreted as negative, as military conquest. But the phrases remnant and nations who are called by my name suggest something positive. And indeed, by the time we get to Acts 15, as the witness of the gospel moves forth and penetrates into the Gentile world, we will see the Jewish believers grappling with the reality of all of these Gentiles coming into the people of God. And so the, so the Jerusalem church then has a council. Peter's there, Paul's there, Barnabas is there, James is there, all the heavy hitters are there. And James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, opens up his Bible and says, what is happening right now is fulfilling Amos chapter nine. The restoration of Israel is beginning. The conquest of the Gentile peoples is beginning. And that conquest is happening through Jesus' witness as they preach the, the, through Jesus' witnesses as they preach the gospel of the kingdom and the world believes. Jesus' challenge and charge to the the disciples to be his witnesses is extended to you and I today. I hope you know that. You're not off the hook here. You're not just reading about things and commands that are relevant to like 12 guys. I hope you didn't think that. The disciples in Acts didn't make it to the ends of the earth, y'all. 
The disciples were the spearhead of the mission. They got it going. They set the trajectory. They laid the foundation. But if the gospel is to reach the ends of the earth, the onus is on us who follow after those first disciples. Doesn't mean that every one of you is supposed to do foreign missions, although I wonder if there are some of you here that are supposed to and you're resisting that call. Some of you, that's the furthest thing from your mind, but I wonder, I wonder if some of you are supposed to do that. Doesn't mean that all of us are supposed to do that, but it does mean that all Christians everywhere are to be a gospel proclaiming people wherever they are and wherever they go. It means that we, Harbin's Church, are to care about God's glory and mission to reach the peoples of this world. Indeed, we are to care enough about people to reach the peoples of this world. It is easy for us to sit in judgment over the disciples and over that typical Jewish first century mindset and just sit in judgment over that and say, well, I just can't believe they wouldn't think about the Gentiles. I can't believe they'd allow racial and political and moral differences to throw up a wall between them. I can't believe they just want to keep all the the benefits and blessings of the kingdom to themselves. Uh, I can't believe that they would rather fight and curse the Gentiles than bless them. How cruel and heartless can they be? How cruel and heartless can we be today? In 2021, we enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom and we just soak up all the good things of God and and we uh, uh, allow our political or moral or lifestyle differences with unbelievers to throw up a wall and we get disgusted with them and we'd rather just blast them on social media like keyboard crusaders and get a hundred likes from others in our echo chamber to make us feel real good We'd rather get angry with unbelievers about destroying our country and attacking our values and threatening our preferred way of life. We'd rather fight them than love them. We'd rather exclude them than reach them. We'd rather just enjoy our God and enjoy our church and be in our safe Christian bubble and to hell, literally, with everyone else. I am really concerned about the aftermath of this election and what it has done to some Christians. I am really concerned about some of the things that I see, just comments that people make and things that people throw up online. You know, I said before the election, I don't, think, I don't know if I said it from up here, but I remember saying to some people that for some Christians, the very best thing that could happen to them is for them not to get their way in the election. Because I think what we're seeing now is some idols that are being threatened, some idols that are being exposed. And we're seeing that some people have put their hopes, perhaps, in things other than God. And and if that's being exposed in some people, if it's being exposed in any of you, praise God for that. Deal with it and repent. Because these things are distracting us from our mission, and why we are really here. You're not here to win political battles. You're here to preach the gospel. You're here to see people saved. All right, well, that was off of my notes. Somebody will 
take me to task later over something I said. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Jesus, in Acts 1.8, is pushing his disciples out of their comfort zone. He's pushing them to do the unsafe thing and, and penetrate into a world that is very different from them and even hostile to them. And, and folks, Jesus is pushing you to do the same thing and pushing me to do the same thing. Folks, your life and my life is to be about more than just earning a living, building a nice little marriage, raising some nice little kids, and carving out a nice little spot for you on planet Earth while the rest of the world burns. I know that evangelism and missions is scary. I know there are risks. You risk rejection. You risk ridicule and marginalization. Some of you have already know what that's like. You've dealt with that. Some of you risk being ostracized from friends and family. Some of you know what that's like. That's happened to you. Some of you may even be risking your job. Depending on where you are in the world, you may even be risking your life. But Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. The Greek word there for witness is the origin of the English word for martyr. Gospel ministry is not for the faint of heart, but brothers and sisters, it is part of your job description. It really is. And Acts 1.8 should cause us all to take inventory on our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I on mission? Am I about these things? When is the last time that I've ever told someone the gospel? Have I told someone the gospel in the past year? Two years? My goal here is not to heap guilt on us. Please, please don't think that. My goal here is to push us and to challenge us. The gospel will be heralded to the ends of the earth, but will it be because of you or in spite of you? But that begs the question, how is this going to happen, really? How will such a big, sweeping, global conquest be accomplished You just said earlier, Deemer, that unlike human kingdoms, this expansion won't happen through human power. And yet Jesus is telling us these humans, these disciples, uh, these very weak, very flawed men are going to be the catalyst for a global takeover. How's that going to happen? How's it going to happen through people like us? Well, that leads to the next point, which is kingdom power. Kingdom power. You know, I've been working my way backwards through verse 8, haven't I? <laughs> the gospel of the kingdom is to spread to the ends of the earth. It will expand to the witness, through the witness of Jesus' disciples. But then look at the first part of verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This kingdom expansion will not happen through the strength of the witnesses. Instead, the disciples will receive the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable them to be successful in their mission. Reminds me of Zechariah 4 that says that God's purposes are accomplished in us not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we will see the spirit give these disciples the ability and the courage to preach the message in the face of opposition and hardship and persecution. And as we continue the book of Acts, we're going to see that the gift of the spirit is not just limited to these disciples, but it's given to all who believe in Christ. It's given to you. What we're going to see in Acts is the kingdom being advanced and the church being built by God's word and God's spirit working through ordinary men and women. 
And that's incredibly important to remember today because the temptation for us is to try to advance the kingdom and build God's church through gimmicks or clever programs or marketing strategies or musical concerts with professional artists and light shows and smoke machines or a reliance on a really cool, hip, clever pastor. (laughs) That latter one would be a particular problem for Harmon's church because I'm 180 degrees opposite of clever and cool and hip. And some of you are saying, Deemer, I'm glad you finally realized that. Oh, it was not finally. I've known that for a while. If our church's success relies on those things, we might as well just pack it up. But the hope of Harbin's church, or any church, in seeing success in the advancement of God's mission, our only hope is the faithful proclamation of the word of God while relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And to the degree that we do that, will be the degree that we are successfully doing what God has called us to do. Well, let's move on to the next point in our text, which is kingdom enthronement, kingdom enthronement. Verse nine, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This verse brings us probably to the, one of the most neglected doctrines in regards to Christ's ministry. We rightly focus a lot on Christ's incarnation and death and resurrection, but we don't spend a whole lot of time considering his ascension. And even as I bemoan that, I won't be able to spend too much time on it now as we're almost out of time this morning. Uh, The ascension of Christ is really worthy of its own sermon. Jesus is lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, throughout the Bible, clouds are often associated with the very presence and power and glory of God. And here Jesus is received into a cloud. The uh, ancient church father, Chrysostom, says this cloud was nothing less than his royal chariot to take him back to heaven. Derek Thomas notes that the ascension underscores Jesus' divine and stately nature. Whereas his entrance into the world had been lowly and humbling, his exit was triumphant and exulting. Is it not wonderful that the final picture we have of Jesus' time on this earth is not a man nailed to a cross, bleeding and naked and drowning in his own blood, but one instead who is triumphantly ascending to take his rightful place on his royal throne. And in this way, the ascension vindicates Christ. Remember that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was accused of being in league with the devil. He was charged with blasphemy. He was dragged before a Roman governor, beaten like a common criminal, and he was crucified. It was a punishment reserved for the very worst of criminals. And folks saw him hanging there, and and they were thinking, you are no Christ. You're no Messiah. Messiah's rule, Messiah's reign. You're just a sinner and God's against you. It's obvious. Now, we talk a lot about how the resurrection vindicates Christ, but the resurrection was only the beginning. After he rises, he then goes to his ascension and his session. Not sure if you've heard that phrase before, Christ's session. Today we may talk about Congress being in session, and what we mean is that the members of Congress are seated and doing the business of governing. And so the ascension repudiates all of the accusations against Christ. He was no sinner. He was not in league with Satan. He was no criminal. He was exactly who he said he was, God's Christ. 
God's anointed king. And the final proof of it is not the resurrection. Other people have been raised from the dead, but Jesus now, under his own power, ascends to heaven in a glorious chariot cloud like a victorious general. The devil was cast down from heaven. We saw that two weeks ago in Revelation 12. The devil was cast down from heaven, but Jesus rises up and he is received and he is in session, ruling and reigning from heaven. His ascension, his reception into heaven shows him to be the perfect priest who represents us, Hebrews 8.1 and 9.24. His presence in heaven means that he is constantly before God's throne, interceding for us, Hebrews 7.25. And his ascension means that his sacrifice was perfect and accepted by God the Father, and so there is no need for further atonement, as Hebrews 10 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The ascension of Christ proves that he is the perfect embodiment of everything that we need, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, and it is the ascension of Christ that triggers the next phase in God's plan of kingdom expansion. Remember what Jesus said to to his disciples, he said, when I go, I will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit comes upon not only the 12 disciples, but upon 3,000 new believers And in his sermon, the apostle Peter will say in Acts 2.33 that being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Much more could be said, but just know that the ascension of Jesus is an absolutely vital part of Jesus' ministry. It's essential for your salvation and for the ultimate success of God's program of global kingdom expansion. Well, We started with a kingdom question, which led to a kingdom clarification and an explanation of kingdom conquest, along with a promise of kingdom power, which comes as a result of kingdom enthronement. And last but not least, we are given the promise of kingdom consummation. Kingdom consummation. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Those would be angels. Like, who are these guys just kind of popping up? They're angels. And they say, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We actually come full circle uh, back to the disciples' original question. The disciples began by asking about the full coming of Messiah's kingdom and power and glory. And as the disciples are watching Christ depart, these angels arrive and they address the disciples' concern about the very end of all things. Uh, The angels don't reveal the timing of the end, but they do assure the disciples that the glorious ending they are longing for, it will come to pass, it will happen. But again, it will be much bigger and much more glorious than they were originally thinking. And these two angels affirm to the disciples another critical doctrine in regards to the work of Christ. And that is his future physical bodily return in glory. There will be a return of the king. The kingdom in its final form is not just spiritual, but physical, material. With Messiah not reigning invisibly from heaven as he is now, but reigning visibly on earth. In fact, these angels and what they say are no doubt alluding to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet writes that, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds, there's the clouds again, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom that the disciples were really longing for but it would not come immediately. Daniel here says that all peoples and nations will serve him and that's wonderful But that means that first there must be a gathering of people from every language and nation that actually will serve him. Like, where are all these people going to come from? (laughs) That's a good question. And Paul answers it in Romans chapter 10 when he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That takes us full circle back to Acts 1.8. And Jesus charged to take the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Paul is, is telling us in Romans 10 that nobody will be saved. No one will be brought into the kingdom apart from witnesses. Witnesses like those disciples and you and me. Telling others of the good news and taking that news to all peoples and nations and languages. That's your mission. Are you on it? Are you on mission? Or maybe you've been distracted by other things. Maybe you need to do what some people are doing right now. There's a big mass exodus from Facebook and Twitter. Maybe that'll help you stay on mission. I don't know. If you have been distracted, I hope this text today reminds you of the main reason that God left you on planet Earth. God could have just saved you and killed you. You know, take you to heaven. That kind of sounds appealing in a way when I turn on the news. Just take me to heaven right now. God didn't do that. God saved you and he left you here. And he has a great purpose for you. A kingdom purpose for you. And what we're talking about today is at the center of that. The disciples begin this conversation by asking about the kingdom. But Jesus and these two angels are telling the disciples before the kingdom fully comes, there must be kingdom citizens. <laughs> right? He, he's, G, Jesus is not going to rule an empty kingdom. There's got to be kingdom citizens and there's got to be lots of them. So go get them. Stop, stop standing there staring into heaven. Get moving, get to work, be my witnesses. To you, Harbin's Church, the message is to stop staring at and being distracted by other things. Stop pouring so much of your time and life and energy into things that have no eternal value. Stop focusing exclusively on yourself and your preferences and your desires and your kingdom and start thinking about his kingdom. And start thinking about the role that you can play in populating it through your gospel witness. And let's get moving. And let's get to work. And let's be his witnesses until the kingdom finally comes. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people and a church on mission. Help us to love people enough to tell people about you. And forgive us for the many times 
that all of us have passed up on opportunities for witness and evangelism and missions. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for the times where we have allowed the distractions of this world to get our eye off the ball and get our eye off of the mission. Father, I pray that you would restore in us a passion and a zeal to tell the world about you. Help us to love people that much. Also help us to love you that much and to love your glory that much. Why should we be the only ones to enjoy your glory? There are so many more out there that can. And so help us to be about that business starting today. In Jesus' name, amen.